Friday morning, yes indeed. Um, it is Monday, yes it is. It is not Monday, is it? <laughs> it is Friday, March 24th, 2023. Welcome to Raging Chickens Friday Politics Roundup. Yes, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. I'll tell you something about this time of year. Something about the way this all works. Something about so much. I don't know. We'll talk about it today. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week, we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Just head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so we know every time we go live. If you listen to this as a podcast, yeah, just make sure that you uh, give us that five-star review. Give us that five-star review. Let other people know why it is that you like the show. To help it so much. Uh, I want to also kind of big shout-out to all our new subscribers, both to our YouTube channel and to our um, our podcast. Um, got some great feedback and some uh uh, some words of support from kind of uh, some new su- new supporters and uh, some new subscribers. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to remind you also, though, but we can't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Nope. Can't do it. That's why Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. Get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. I'm going to try to fix something here real quick if it'll work. For some reason, there it is. That's what I'm looking for. Uh, for some reason, my uh, our chat this week was not showing up our uh, YouTube streams. I'm just kind of adjusting that at the moment for our podcast listeners who have no idea what's going on. Well, there you go. Now you know. Now you know. You're in the know. That's what you get to know by being part of the show. Anyways, on today's show, um, we're going to be uh, looking kind of primarily at the kind of national level today, uh, and I'll, I'll get to the reason why for that in a bit. Um, there's a lot of stuff happening in Pennsylvania that is, that is absolutely true. There's a lot of things that have been happening on school boards, which we've been covering quite a bit on, but I'll tell you about that in kind of in a bit of a minute. But on today's show... Uh, whew, this was the big one. On Monday, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change issued its most comprehensive and alarming report to date about the, quote, closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all, unquote. While this report and previous ones made it clear that the world needs to, you know, rapidly reduce and then eliminate using fossil fuels, a new fossil fuel emissions record was set in 2022. So that's 
if just for anybody who's kind of wondering, that is the wrong direction. That is the opposite of what we need right now. As The Guardian pointed out that the report foregrounded three signposts. One, that the climate crisis is fundamentally a crisis of injustice. That is, the people that are going to pay the price the most are those people who are least responsible for creating the problem. Um, That seems to be uh, the kind of M.O. uh, in today's world. Um, Those folks who bear the costs are not the ones who have reaped the benefit and the profit and the wealth. Yep. Second one is that new fossil fuel developments are incompatible with hitting a net zero emissions goal. That is, you got to keep it in the ground. If you don't keep it in the ground, if you have new development, we're done. We're not getting to any of our goals. And then third one, there are key technological and financial needs um, in order to reach where we're going. And those and those are there, right? The good news of the report is, if you had to look for a silver lining, if there's any silver lining out there, is that... We know what the problem is, we know how to fix it, and we have the tools already available and ready to be deployed, right? So we don't need all new kind of new inventions and all this other kind of hokey-dokey stuff. We don't need starships sprinkling the clouds with mirrors and whatever it might be. No, we already have the tools there. The only thing that is standing in the way is political will, right? And the good news of that is that that means it based is on people. Right. It's not a meteor. Right. Coming down to crash us. It's not something that's out of our control. It is within our control. Yes, it's a heavy lift, but that's where we're at, folks. That's where we're at. And seeming, you know, uh, right before the IPCC released this report, of course, our own government, once again, going in the wrong direction. That's right. On March 13th, probably already know a bunch of this. All right. Biden greenlighted the Willow Project, a massive new oil drilling operation on federal lands in Alaska. The project is projected to produce around 600 million barrels of oil. And that's at the time that the IPCC is telling us, keep it in the ground. It's crazy. A lot of young voters, and this was a great piece uh, from Will Bunch in the Philly Inquirer on this one. A lot of young voters and people who are deeply concerned about climate change perceive Biden's actions as a slap in the face. And uh, if you've been uh, spending any little time on TikTok and looking at some of the climate activists and climate action stuff happening there, there's a lot of, lot of unhappy people, to say the least. And as Will Bunch actually reports in this, and we can talk a little bit more about it uh, a little bit later in the show, is that, look, Biden needs, Biden or whoever Democrat who runs is going to need younger voters in order to hit over the margin. Yes, he's going to need a whole bunch of other people too as well, but um there is good reason to believe that if he u- loses the youth vote, he loses the election. So, choice has got to be made. Are you going to pander to your corporate donors, or are you going to build power from the base? Again, the perennial question that we talk about incessantly on the show. And Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has signed a pair of bills that will force transgender students to use bathrooms of their gender assigned at birth and that will ban gender-affirming medical care. Yep, the Iowa law was signed one day after Arkansas signed its own so-called bathroom bill, and Idaho is waiting for its governor to sign theirs. Yeah, it's a big party. The AP reports that more than 25 Republican-led bills across 14 states are targeting transgender individuals, looking to make them targets in the Republican culture war electoral strategies. I mean, it's, just, it's just brutal what is happening. 
I mean, we're seeing it obviously right here at the local level. We're seeing the um, transgender students um, and LGBTQ students more more broadly being targeted in, in schools, and now we're seeing being um, targeted with national or with statewide legislation and bans. Um, it's just pretty nuts. And, well, at the same time, Biden issued his first veto against Republican, quote-unquote, anti-woke capitalism. Yes, that's a, that it's a, the anti-woke capitalism investing resolution that basically would have banned retirement fund managers from considering social issues in their investment strategies. What are social issues, you ask? Well, things like, oh, fossil fuels, right? Investment fund managers look and say, maybe fossil fuels is not such a great investment. Maybe we need to kind of invest in things that are not going to destroy our planet, right? No. Now, Republicans want to say, no, no, you must invest in fossil fuels. You must do those things, <laughs> right? Well, fossil fuels or commitment to diversity or a good record on inclusion or maybe supportive, oh, I don't know, LGBTQ rights, right? I mean, there's a reason why you got people like uh, kind of Governor DeSantis down there in Florida um, basically all pissed off at Disney because Disney had the gall to basically try to make it a more welcoming place for LGBTQ, you know, individuals, Right? So what does he do? Strip some of their tax status. Now, again, Disney, does Disney deserve its own special tax status as a corporation to control? No, but here we go. This is what the Republicans are running on, folks. This is it. <sighs> what Republicans tried to overturn the video, they couldn't get enough votes. Nice. An NPR cancels four podcasts in the latest round of cuts in media organizations facing a projected $30 million decline in revenue. Popular podcasts such as Invisibilia, Rough Translation, Louder Than a Riot, which does like reports on hip hop stuff, uh, and everyone and their mom will all get the acts. This is kind of one of the largest cuts, uh, uh, layoffs in NPR's history. Now, a massive three-day strike by Los Angeles public school workers that included bus drivers, custodians, special ed assistants, and cafeteria workers highlights the poor salaries and working conditions of those helped the schools operate, and that's in the second largest school district in the country, next to only New York City. And the Washington Post reports that, quote, electric cars are creating a new economy and leaving some towns behind. Now, I, we're going to spend a little time with that article um, because, of one, on the one hand, it's important. Right? It's important because we're thinking about when we make the necessary transition, if we can get there, a necessary transition to get off of fossil fuels, right? That cannot be at the expense of people who are already facing like kind of bad conditions to begin with, right? I mean, that's, that's the whole idea, right? The whole idea is that you want to make sure that that transition is a just transition. That was one of the principles behind see, the Green New Deal, right? To see this in holistically. So that's important about the article. But at the same time, as the way that the article is written, right, it's really interesting because it pits people, workers, against the government and lets corporations off the hook. It's a really interesting take, which says a lot about, um, you know, the way these issues are reported in mainstream media. Anyways. And you probably heard about this one. You know, Donald Trump, yep, Donald Trump, he doesn't get a whole lot of mentions on this show because he's freaking annoying to, that, the you know, whatever. Can't predict what this guy's going to do. Whatever. Anyways, he raised over $1.5 million in the three days after he took to his Twitter knockoff site, you know, Truth Social, and predicted he was going to be arrested this past Tuesday. Was he arrested? No. Did an indictment come down on Tuesday? No. Was it a lot of hype? Could be. 
Then we heard it was going to be Wednesday. Didn't happen on Wednesday. Thursday. No, no. Well, Friday morning. Wait, wait. Hold on. Just to make sure. Since the time that I've kind of uh, kind of got on the air this morning, let me just double check. Is Trump indicted? No. Oh, but look at this just in. Look at this just in. U.S. launches airstrikes in Syria. That'll help everybody, I am sure. Anyways, but no, nothing about Donald Trump. Nothing about Donald Trump. What? Oh, oh wait a minute. There was one thing about Donald Trump from this morning. Yeah, did you hear about this? Well, uh... We haven't seen the indictment, but he did take to Truth Social this morning to warn of potential death and destruction if he is charged in the criminal case about a hush money payments to porn star Stormy Daniels. There you go. The threats of violence. You know, I'm 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 teaching a class right now. It's called Rhetoric Democracy Advocacy, and we're focusing in on demagoguery and democracy right now. And it is, uh, it's remarkable. I mean, having that kind of focus study at the same time we're seeing this stuff happen, and it's like, like literally right out of the playbook. It's just, it's just incredible. Um, but we'll get into that in a bit. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune in the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, or Facebook. Subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Check out the RickSmithShow.com for the latest across all his platforms, his TV show, his streams, everything. It's right there, RickSmithShow.com. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, the amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast on Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And I thought this was worth mentioning. I'm sorry I'm bringing this up on my phone. If you people uh, who are watching this uh, right now are seeing me mess around with my phone right now. It's not because I'm being distracted by um, not being I'm being distracted by uh, text or something like this. It's just that I was trying to look up quickly because I was just looking at this this morning and I haven't listened to it yet and I can't believe I can't find it because it was oh there it was there it was um, this is actually a cool one. I haven't I have not listened to this yet but um, there's been a two part um, series on the or a series of episodes on Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast um, and uh, they've been looking at this book called uh, Democrats 101 uh, by J.M. Purvis. And uh, they read the book and they're kind of talking a little bit about and kind of taking it apart. It's uh, I just listened to a little bit of it to kind of get a sense of the episode this morning because I, I, like I said, I haven't listened to it yet, but it still looks like it's going to be a good one. So go over there and check it out. Um, that's the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast, wherever you get your podcast. And if you haven't heard already, The Signal is a new podcast by the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by Bucks, um, Bucks County Beacon's editor-in-chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on new right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. And Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions that will help steer the community towards a calmer, saner, progressive roots. And attention all you gamers out there. The Game Inn is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they got everything from retro, retro N64s, latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, and kids get discounts when they get A's in the report cards. Check them out at the Facebook page, at their Facebook page, or follow them on Twitter at, at The Game Inn. That's with two N's. If you've got a question about a game, look for something hard to get, shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. Shout out, as always, goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff on his YouTube page and follow him on Twitter at, at Song of Dayman. That's at Song of Dayman on Twitter with two N's. And coming up this Monday, and this is kind of what I was getting at here, and I've actually, I've, I've been rambling on so much that I've, I've, I've outlasted my intro music. How about that? 
Yes, I'm a blabbermouth this morning. Um, but coming up on Monday, March 27th, um, Cyril Michaleko is going to be on the show. So we got uh, Editor-in-Chief of Bucks County Beacon, Cyril Michaleko, is going to be on Out to Coop Live. And uh, we're going to be really digging into some of the school board stuff. Um, the Beacon has been doing some great reporting on what's happening in the school board. And frankly, uh, I wanted to be able to have to be able to talk to somebody about it, <laughs> right? To uh, talk to somebody about it um, in a more sustained and focused way. And uh, instead of just kind of running through a bunch of the happenings here on Friday, I thought we'd put that on for um, Monday on Out to Coop Live. Um, so Out to Coop Live with Cyril Michaleko, uh this coming Monday, and we'll be digging into school board stuff and you know, all the kind of crazy stuff happening in Bucks County and beyond right now. So... Oh, and I should say, if you have not already listened to this past week's podcast um, that I spoke with um, Alan Gratz about his book, um, Two Degrees, and how the Kutztown Area School District uh, basically canceled a literacy program called the One Book, One School program that was set to read his book, and they got rid of it, and it wasn't even really actively discussed. The superintendent just basically caved to some right-wing pressure. Um and uh, decided, no, we're going to cancel it because we, you know, these right wingers don't want kids learning about climate change. And um, it's a, it was a great show. And Alan Gratz, I mean, I'll tell you, uh, I, I, I literally, when we got off the air I, and my wife was down here and I was saying, you know, man, that guy gives me hope. <laughs> um, it gives me hope because, not because he's got some kind of like starry eyed optimism, but because he's he's doing such good stuff and with such generosity and kindness that it reminds me of possibilities. You know, it always kind of people like that have always been so important for me in my life, you know, just to kind of, cause you know, I tend to focus on uh, problems, you know, and that can get kind of tough at times. Right. And to see somebody who's got such energy um, and, you know, again, it makes sense, right. The energy comes because he's like so focused on kind of engaging with kids um, he's writing for kids and he sees such kind of hope and possibility in what those kids bring to the table. Um, and just, just like, just a super, super great guy. But anyways, just want to make sure I hit this again is that he is going to be in Kutztown on April 15th, right? He was already coming to town for the, uh, annual Kutztown university. This is actually their 25th annual, um, Kutztown university children's literature conference. And um, the idea initially was like, you know, you have the one, 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 one book, one school program, and then he was going to be in town and maybe the, um, there'd be an event at the middle school with the kids and it was going to be that kind of thing. And that just kind of the rug just got pulled out from underneath that, that those possibilities. So this is just amazing is that Alan Gratz basically uh, working with um, some local folks and the uh, Firefly Bookstore in Kutztown. Um, he's going to be doing two events on April 15th um, that will be open to the public um, at the Firefly Bookstore in Kutztown. Um, that will be uh, in the afternoon, I believe it's one o'clock, is that it's going to be just kind of a quick kind of meet and greet book signing type of thing. Um, but in the evening, right, he is actually going to be um, interviewed. I think it's at 630. He's going to be interviewed um, by the middle school student who started the, um, uh, the teen band book club. Right. If you remember, we've talked about this quite a bit on the show, and um, she's going to be kind of interviewing him and talking about the issues in the book and talking about some of the um, the issues around banning books and so on. Um, and again, there'll be opportunities to get books signed and things like this. And Red Wine and Blue, right? Uh, Red Wine and Blue, that organization, 
uh, is helping raise money, right? I'm not sure where, if they've got all the money yet or not, but they're helping raise money um, to purchase 200 copies of his book to give to those middle school students who were deprived of that opportunity to read that book. Freaking amazing stuff. So I'm going to be there on um, April 15th. I hope that you'll come out to it as well. Um, it's going to be a, a fantastic event. I tell you, he's just a, um, he's a, he's just a great individual. I enjoyed talking to him so much. Um, and do check out our interview with him. Um, this is this most recent Monday, this past Monday on, um, uh, the 20th. Um, and it, it, it worked out too, as well, that that interview fell on the same day that the IPCC released its climate report, which is, was kind of ironic. It was also the kind of, uh, 20th anniversary of the launch of the Iraq war, which was another thing. Anyways, so anyway, make sure you check it, check that out. I just want to make sure you check out that show, and then uh, you know about what's happening on the fifteenth. We'll keep on plugging it here on the show too, as well. And look, everybody, if you want progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to Patreon.com/slash/RCPress today. We're here for the fight, but we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement, the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress today. All right, sorry for the long, drawn-out in, in, like, intro today um, here. I mean, the big news for me this week, and, um, and, and I say big news in the sense that this is probably the most kind of consequential, long-term impact kind of issue that we've got to deal with as a, as a, as a people. Um, I have to do with climate change. Um, and I'm I'm glad to see that there was so much emphasis in this IPCC report um, on kind of justice and injustice, um, because I really do think that is the lens through which um, we need to uh, be addressing climate change. Um, now, Naomi Klein wrote about this in her book, This Changes Everything, and she's been on this ticket for quite some time. Um, this is the same the the same thing that was identified by the folks behind the Green New Deal, by um, what the Sunrise Movement has been foregrounding. Um, several kind of you know big coalitional groups that are trying to thinking very carefully about how we address climate change and the the urgency behind it. All see the same things, right? And to see the UN's um, Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change be so clear eyed on this one is important because you know the recognition is number one the people who have benefited the people who have contributed the least to climate change are the ones who are slated to bear the greatest cost right with their lives with their homes with their living you know i mean and again this is the story of capitalism right i mean this is the story of like the you know the 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 launch of the free market capitalism that is uh, you know we just call it capitalism but of particular this is what has been happening um you know since we went to this whole free market model i mean we've watched you know this runaway um uh, um race to the bottom um for capital accumulation and extractivism and that has only hastened, right, the climate crisis and the kind of like, you know, destruction of, you know, kind of say job security or stability or that, you know, there's a reason why that 
all these countries who basically slowly started getting onto, I'm talking about, you know, kind of developed countries who slowly started following in the U.S.'s, uh, US's lead by, you know, saying, well, big government is bad, that we need to basically, you know, get the government out of everything. We need to privatize everything. It's like all those countries. We see this in France right now. France, of course, you've got massive strikes in France because uh, Macron wants to uh, single-handedly kind of um, force the, uh, the hike in the retirement age. Right. So you have these, quote unquote, pension crises that are happening all over the world. Right. As if it's some kind of natural disaster. It's not a natural disaster. Right. It's a it's a it's it's a direct result of the defunding of the public sector. Right. I mean, that's just what it is. I mean, it's a defunding of the public sector that's happening kind of country after country. Right. In the U.S., I mean, we know this all too well. I mean, we have our our safety net is like basically like, you know, like Swiss cheese at best. Right. I mean, you know, you know, it's almost laughable in some ways, you know, in that really dark humor type of way. And we start thinking about pension crisis in other countries when like here, there's no pensions. Right. I mean, like in other countries, understand this, right. In other countries, like the state is who gives you your pension. You know how we have social security? Well, the state in these other countries, because you paid taxes into this stuff, you have a guaranteed pension. So when you retire, you're not going hungry. Or you're not have to be, you know, forced to go be a Walmart greeter. If you want to work, great, but you're not forced to. Just to put the cat food on your table, right? In this country, no, we gave up on that a long time ago, right? We never really had it, right? Social Security was basically like, oh, okay, I guess, we, I guess we don't want Granny starving, so we'll give her enough to get the cat food, right? So that, I mean, so it was, a, you know, anti-poverty program, right? Rick Smith has always said this, right? Social Security is an anti-poverty program. And that's what it was, right? So basically, we don't want, we, you, you, you worked your entire life, right? You, you were a contributor to this country, right? You raised a family, you were part of a community, and in your final years, you shouldn't have to go hungry. I mean, how, that's like freaking common sense, right? You would seem, you know, whatever. I'm naive, I know. But that's the idea. In other countries, they would say, oh, no, no, we don't want you just to kind of like survive on cat food. No, we're going to have a pension, which means that actually, you know what? And, 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 you know, the sunset years of your life, right? And that kind of the, you know, the, the, what do they call it? You know, the, I forget there's a word for it, but, um, you know, in those, those, those final years of your life, you should travel. You should relax. You should enjoy life. Spend more time with family. Go on vacations, right? Sit on the beach for a while. Garden. Do art projects, right? I mean, you put it, you work your entire life. You've been contributing so much like your entire life. So now take a break and we're going to take care of you because our, you know, this, whatever country we're talking about, the country saying we take care of each other in the end. Right. I know I'm being a little simplistic, but that was the idea, right? Of those kind of pensions. But slowly, when you start kind of like privatizing everything and you start handing more and more authority and power and decision making over to the corporate sector and to private interest and allow billionaires to accumulate um, the kind of excess labor, all that kind of stuff. Then you get a crisis. Of course you do. Because if you basically have concentrated more and more of the money into fewer and fewer hands at the same time that you're giving those same people that you're giving all the money to all the tax breaks in the world so they don't end up paying any taxes. 
then you're starving the coffers, right? You're starving those programs that are designed to help people because you think it's more important to give it to those, you know, Elon Musk's or like, you know, of the world. And I don't give a crap about what political party you belong to if you're a billionaire. You don't deserve to be a billionaire. I'm sorry. Right? Because you didn't that money didn't come from just you. It came from everyone below you. It came from everyone who built the infrastructure to make it possible for you to do what you do. But we hand it all over. We took away, we said, hey, you know what? We're gonna do this with unions too as well. We're gonna do this with good jobs. We're gonna say, you know what? Let's go to the stock market, right? Instead of having a, a pension, oh, that's, that's for that's like old and dusty and old, like old-fashioned kind of stuff. Let's go to new and sparkly stock market things called a 401k. Ooh, it's got numbers and letters and parentheses in it. It's great. It's going to be great. It's going to make you rich. Right? So we handed over a guaranteed income and our finances as a life to the freaking casino. And has it panned out? Absolutely not. There is not a study out there that shows that people are better off today with 401ks than they were before. Most people, most Americans have next to nothing saved for retirement. Right? So that's what I mean. That's the failure. The failure to address climate is a failure of public action. Right? It's a turning away from collective problems. You know, and I mentioned this, you know, you know, I'm teaching this class, Rhetoric, Democracy, Advocacy, and we're reading um, um, Patricia Roberts Mills' um, um, <clears throat> um, um, book, uh, blah, 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 Demagoguery and Democracy, right? Um, and Demagoguery and Democracy is, I mean, you know, we had around this program, right? Um, and... <sighs> in that basically you know and i guess what i come back to patricia roberts miller right in her book um and in her lot of her work right really kind of like lays out the kind of like what a healthy democratic what a healthy democratic deliberation in our culture looks like right um what it what it needs to be if democracy is going to be worth its name right how we deliberate over issues of public concern, right? And then looks at the corresponding, right? The undoing of, of many um, democratic systems of government has been demagoguery, right? And, but looks at that the way that happens in our culture as a whole, right? And, you know, at its, at, at its baseline, it, it, you know, it's about, you know, if everything just becomes about us and them, right? Um, about which team we're on, right? Um, and we end up kind of just going at each other to see if we can what kind of little petty win that we can have along the way, as opposed to actually thinking about how we solve big problems, right? And you know, the biggest issue that we're facing right now, of course, we talked about on the show kind of extensively, is that you know, in order for that to work, in order for democracy to be able to actually solve big problems, is that you basically need all the players, the political players, to be playing by the same sets of rules, right? At the very baseline, 
right? You have to say, okay, we're here to solve solve particular kinds of problems, and that in a way that is going to be reflective of the desires of the most of the of the the people who elected us, right? And every indicator shows that that's that's going in the complete opposite direction. I mean, one, we have one political party, the Republican Party, who is hell bent on getting power at all cost. Is hell bent on not finding like looking for diversity and inclusion and kind of an expansion of uh, democracy, but the ways of limiting it for particular people about defining an in group as white Christian nationalists, right, and out group as everybody else, right? It's that whole idea. You don't, you know, it's the America love it or leave it, and the people who are saying that are generally arguing for a version of America that looks like them. And anybody who doesn't look like them or act like them or believe like them, they think it's okay to think we should exclude it. So democracy is for them, not everybody else. And so you got one so you got one party that's playing by those rules, and then you've got another party who's still kind of pretending that we're we're doing this democracy thing. Right? But you know, I mean I look at the, you know, Biden's decision to go ahead and greenlight the Willow Project is a perfect example of this, right? Not only was this a campaign promise, right? I mean, this is, he basically, you know, Will Bunch reports on this really well. He, this was a campaign promise that he made, right? One of the things that um, kind of got a lot of the kind of climate justice folks behind him, got a lot of young folks behind him, is was this kind of commitment um, to stave off the worst impacts of climate change, Right. Well, there's not going to be any more new drilling. We're not going to, you know, drill new new leases on federal lands, all this other kind of stuff. And this is big, you know, 600 million barrels of oil at a time, which we need to keep it in the ground. And it's just like, you know, I mean, there's this this great um, there was this great um, uh, TikTok on this by uh, Will Bunch has it embedded in this thing. That's how I've seen it. So uh, Elise Joshi, um, Elise Joshi, um, um put up this piece that was, I wish I grabbed the sound for this so we, I could play it right now for you. But um, she's she's a, a 20-year-old kind of TikToker, climate labor organizer. She's the ex- acting executive director of uh, Gen Z for Change. Um, you know, she, you know she's at kind of, she's at over in Berkeley. I think it's like uh, at Cal Berkeley. Um, and she called it what it is. She called it a slap in the face. Right, that this was the kind of thing that we uh, we cannot possibly need, and you know, basically laid it all out there, and so basically saying that this is not we're not going away, and we're coming for you. It doesn't matter your political party; we're coming for you because they want to. As she says, like she wants to live in a future that's recognizable, <laughs> right? So, I mean, I, I don't know what you do with that, right? I mean, it's pretty crazy. And, you know, there's those folks, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, 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 I grow impatient with, and I, I have to learn to be more patient on this, right, um, to actually talk through this instead of just being dismissive because it's like it gets frustrating for me when I start hearing people say, well, you know, he was facing a lot of pressure. I'm like, are you freaking kidding me? Who's the pressure from? I really think, you know, in, when you're teaching writing, right, you always, that one of the things, one of the kind of tropes you hear a lot of things that you use often as a teacher is you talk about the editor on your shoulder, right? And, you know, if you ever spend any time writing, right, you know that, you know, sometimes the, the one of the difficulties you encounter in kind of writing something is that you're constantly, like, 
judging every word and every sentence you start putting down through the lens of this editor on your shoulder, like looking for all the incorrectness, right? So you get stuck on kind of saying the first sentence right before you can write like the next sentence, as opposed to just, you know, just getting it all down. We read this, this one article in my classes and my, my composition classes, it's called shitty first drafts. Right. And you talk about, you talk more and more writers. It's kind of these like, look, the first draft, you call it the down draft, right? You, say, you just get it all down, right? It's gonna be messy. It's gonna suck. It's gonna all that stuff. And then, then you have something to work with. Right. But if you're writing for with the editor on your shoulder constantly, you're always worried about, say, kind of doing it correctly. Right. It's going to interfere your ability to do it. In this case. Right. You also have to add in the thing. Well, like which editor on the shoulder? And we talk about all the pressure that like, that that editor is something that was fashioned in like the 1980s and 1990s about, you know, at a particular time when the Democratic Party was, was terrified after the, the uh, uh, Reagan won election and believed that, bought the whole line, what Bill Clinton did is that you got to keep on moving to the right and you have to appease the people on the right and you have to appease corporate interests. You have to be more corporate and more pro-business and more anti-immigrant you know, anti and more anti-crime than the Republicans in order to get elected, as opposed to being for something. Right? That was a whole Bill Clinton triangulation thing, right? The whole idea was that you take Republicans' agenda, right? You change it a little bit, right? And you try to double down on it, right? By saying, I'm more this than they are, <laughs> right? I mean, it's just like, it's so messed up. But it's this terror of the Republicans. It's the terror of being labeled like anti-business, right? Or being, you know, all this other kinds of, the terror of being labeled a socialist, well, meanwhile, you've got like the vast majority of Americans who are paying the price for that, that kind of approach to policy. And, you know, Greenlighting the Willow Project is a perfect example of this. And look, I, I get, right? I mean, look, I mean, at some point you just, you just got to play hardball, right? I mean, I, I get the fact that the Republican Congress is not going to pass like like sweeping climate legislation, right? I get that. But because of that, you're, it's not like the, your option is therefore the only thing you can left to do is, oh, I have more fossil fuel developed. No, <laughs> it's, no. It's you use it as a bludgeon, a political bludgeon to go out and say, we need to do this now. And you nonstop attack with new climate legislation designed to protect workers, designed to ensure that our kids and our grandkids are going to have a livable future, designed to ensure that those people that are going to be most affected by this are not going to pay the biggest price or that, you know, the, you know Basically, what I was saying before, the people who have who are, are most vulnerable in this are not going to pay the biggest price. Right. I mean, just nonstop. Use your bully pulpit, send people out to kind of do this stuff. And by the way, Kamala Harris, not the best person in the world to be doing that. Just going to say. That's another response, right? You keep on flooding this, you know, you flood the field, right? You flood the field with proposals and legislation designed around this, right? That are those things that are your biggest priorities. You don't start with like, well, we got to find the compromise, right? Compromise by itself is not a good thing. I, I, I am a firm believer 
And this is one of the one of the hardest aspects of democracy for people to kind of like to 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 grapple with, is that democracy will it will ultimately depend upon compromise in order to kind of get the you have it's like it, it's one of the natures of it, right? But the thing is, is that what are you compromising over, right? The way our compromise works now is you you take the most kind of extreme position from the Republicans. Right. The Democrats look at that and say, OK, maybe we can push it a little thing. Here. No, they've never even articulated their, their kind of like, you know, the full like the, the full argument and have even kind of argued for it. And the fact is, is that the, the majority of people in this country, every single poll shows this. does not want to go in the direction of the Republicans. Yes, Republicans are winning elections because they've gerrymandered all this crap. They've kind of set, you know, they're, they're getting rid of the Voting Rights Act or they got rid of the Voting Rights Act or uh, seeking to suppress the vote even more. That's what they're doing. And because they've been very, very skilled in kind of structural manipulation, that's going to help them win elections. We got to go with what the, what the people need. I just, I was devastated. Look, I mean, look, I'll, I'll be honest. When I was, I, when I, I didn't want to talk about this last week because I was so upset about it. I mean, because it just felt, it felt like to me is like, okay, why don't you go ahead and sign the death certificates now? Go ahead. Biden sure as hell is not going to be around when the worst of this happens. And you know, guess what? And his grandkids, because they are rich, they're going to be fine. They'll probably be a little uncomfortable in their new heated up disaster prone world, but they'll be fine behind their gated communities. It's nuts. So yeah, that was that, uh, you know, I think that's the top liner for this week in many ways. On the other hand, now we start looking at, you know, this is what I mean is like, you know, there is no, there is no agenda on the Republican side other than make people's lives worse. Right. I mean, if we, we, we talk about this, you know, th this bill that the Republicans were advocating for this kind of you, you've probably heard this now. Right. This starts creeping up. And this is another kind of new talking point. Right. On Tucker Carlson and Fox News, which then makes its way into everything like that. It's called like ESG investing. Right. ESG investing is like what is it? Is it in, environment, environmental and social something or other? I forget. You want to throw it now to the. Right. Um, I'm just forgetting the ESG investing. What is the step for ESG, ESG? Anyways, but it's a, that's a whole idea. That's the whole idea is that there's there's been pushes in recent years, right? Um, and what's interesting about this is actually some of it is coming from inside places like Wall Street and kind of the investment communities and so on. Right. When they look at things like fossil fuel development, right, and they look at kind of you know if I'm if I'm gonna have a retirement fund. And I'm looking, you know, okay, I'm looking for long-term invest investments um, in, say, stocks and different companies and things like this in order to try to get a decent return for my, um, uh, for, you know, the, the members of that retirement thing. Um, that I'm, I'm, try I'm trying to look long-term. And what's been happening is that finally the investment communities are actually starting to say, like, you know what, a fossil fuel development is not probably going to be the best in its long-term development. For the longest time, you know, these investment firms just dump tons of money into fossil fuel industries because, like, they're the most profitable companies in the history of the planet, right? 
and whatever those individuals, what was ever in their hearts, right? It didn't matter because they were just about money, right? They're just trying to kind of get, you know, the most return on their investment. That's what they saw. Now, even those people are looking at fossil fuel development and say, look, one, the, the, the easy oil, right, is, is not there anymore. And so you have to get, you have to spend more and more money, destroy more and more kind of lives and communities and, it, it, and, and kind of have more complex um, things, you know, to basically get the fossil fuels that are out there. So you got to basically lobby, spend hundreds of millions of dollars of lobbying um, uh, politicians on Capitol Hill to open up the federal uh, federal lands for drilling. You have to rely on hydraulic fracturing or fracking, right? Um, which it kind of burns a ton of fossil fuel and is incredibly wasteful for the little amount that it gets. And then, you know, you, know, you, have, to, you have to kind of drill wells deeper and deeper in the ocean where it becomes more precarious. And so these people are looking at that and saying, like, you know, this is probably not the most investment. At the same time, for years, activists have been pressuring, putting pressure upon those very companies, right? Those investment firms, retirement investment things to say, look, you can have a disproportionate impact. This goes back to like long term strategies of targeting um, investment or going for disinvestment. Right. So we had most famous examples, apartheid South Africa strong divestment campaigns that was pushing local and state and national governments and companies to divest their investments in South Africa because South Africa was basically, you know, it was, uh, uh, you know, uh, a neo-slave state, right? I mean, it was um, <laughs> an apartheid regime. I mean, that's what, that's what, that's what it was. Um, it was a racist regime to its core. And then that had a long-term effect when people started pulling their investments out of South Africa and South Africa became more and more isolated, right? Same thing that's happening with fossil fuels, right? I mean, this, this is not the only example, but fossil fuels, right? There's been um, um, divest from fossil fuel campaigns um, that have been happening on, you know, famously at Harvard, but also at, at universities across the country, urging their, um, especially those universities that have uh, really, you know, large endowments, right, that have, you know, like millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in endowments that they have are investment funds that they, they use to kind of like, you know, keep that, that university rich, um, basically saying, we're gonna pull out those investments for those fossil fuels, right? And that's, that's been a targeted, like that's been targeting, uh, like fossil fuel um, investment for quite some time, in addition to these retirement funds. So, Again, this is just going to be the latest thing. So because they're saying that, and they're also, you know, looking at things like, look, you know, which companies are basically responding best to kind of um, where Americans are, right? And you know, Americans, for the most part, you know, they this whole like big blown up thing over kind of like, you know, trans, right? The trans youth and all this other kind of stuff. Most Americans don't care, right? Because you know what? Most Americans are like, you know, if, if it doesn't affect them personally, they're like, well, whatever, Right? It's only this kind of like this white Christian nationalist core of people that are driving this whole debate around it. And, you know, I mean, don't get me wrong. They're having very real effects as we're seeing kind of like in, you know, this bunch of legislation. So I'm not saying that it's not real. Don't get me. Don't even think I'm saying that. What I'm just saying is that if you again, you ask most people, look at most of the polling, that's just not that much of an issue. Right. But anyways, so th so the idea there is that, you know, like, say, for example, you have a company that is kind of, you know, doing lots of advertising about diversity and inclusion, right? And is kind of having, you know, they're starting to shift or have shifted their advertising campaigns or the way that they kind of promote themselves to basically instead of it just showing like the lily white suburban teenagers working for their company. Now you've basically got 
like, you know, people that are more representative of people across the board because they recognize that, that what's happened in American culture. And so an investment firm might look at companies like that and say, yeah, this is a, actually a good model. So we're going to put our some money there. Well, the Republicans wanted to basically ban that kind of consideration. Right. Uh, and they keep on calling this woke capitalism. Right. So, you know, it's, it's, it's unbelievable, right? For the people who believe you want everything to be in the market, right? So here you have the market responding to something that's very real in the world. And they're, nope, nope, not the market. Now we want to control it. It just shows you everything that comes out of their mouth is just freaking nonsense. But um, so they put forward a kind of a resolution basically calling on, you know, the banning of the practices of taking into consideration, you know, these kind of quote unquote social issues, right? Biden vetoed it. Thank goodness for him. Right. And the Republicans couldn't find enough votes to kind of override his veto. So it went down. Right. But it just shows you. Right. It's like this is this is the, you know, wokeness. Right. Or the anti woke crowd, which is, you know, this DeSantis's thing. Uh, they're just going to apply it to whatever they, it is that they don't like. Right. And they're going to basically try. They're going to use the, you know, uh, you know, this is this is the thing. This is what they do. Right. They're going to use the kind of the uh, they're going to use the scary monsters, right? They're going to use the kind of we're going to say like, like, yeah, these LGBTQ people coming for your kids, right? And they're right around the corner or sneaking. They're everywhere and they're everywhere, right? So you should be scared. And then there's the kind of these there's these black people and then there's these immigrants and then there's like and that's what they do. Right. It's, they're they're going to basically say that all of these 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 monsters are coming for you. So therefore, you should be scared and therefore you should kind of go and yell at your school board and then you should come out and you should vote for these extreme candidates. It's nothing to do with things that are going to help us. It has everything to do just playing in the worst ways on people's fears. Fears, I might add, that they didn't have until these extremists and people within right-wing media created those fears for them. So there you have it. Anyway, so that was the one good news. Now, but then the bad news and the flip side of that is, like I said, the real consequences. You have Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds um, has basically signed a pair of these bills. Um, and just just, just pause for a minute at, at what this goes on. I'm just going to read a little bit. This is from uh, the AP, right? Um, and Associated Press reports like Des Moines, Iowa, say Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds has signed a pair of laws restricting the bathrooms transgendered students can use and banning gender affirming medical care amid a flood of legislation nationwide targeting the trans community. Reynolds, a Republican, met with parents of transgender children to discuss bills before signing them Wednesday, the DeWarren Register report. Here, this is what kills me. My heart breaks. This is a quote, quote, my heart breaks, unquote, Reynolds told reporters, quote, I've sat down and met with them. It's not easy. It's not easy for me either. It's not easy for our elected officials to make these decisions. So I just, I hope they know that. Who cares? You're going to listen to the stories of these people with transgendered kids. And you're going to, you, you, you are going to tell me your heart breaks. And it's not an easy decision to make. What, what does that even mean? What it tells me is that you're putting on a show for the cameras and for the media to say that you met with them and you heard them out so you could come out and say your heart breaks. But you're going to do it anyways. And my guess is when you walked into those damn meetings with those parents, 
with those parents of transgender children, you already knew what you were going to do. You were there to placate them and to put those little sad eyes on, right? That's what they do. It's, I, I, I couldn't believe it. And her endorsement of the laws, this is back to the AP report, her endorsement of the laws, which took effect immediately, came just one day after Arkansas's governor signed a similar bathroom bill and a bill in Idaho was awaiting the governor's signature. In Iowa, the new law bars transgendered students from using public school restrooms that align with their gender identity. Students will need parental consent for special accommodations like using a faculty or single occupancy restroom. This kills, here you go. Ready? Ready for the brown shirts? This is, this is it. This is it. Here they are. The law's enforcement relies on citizen complaint filings that authorities have three days to address. If the school doesn't act, that citizen could fit, file a complaint with the attorney general who would investigate and possibly pursue legal action. Republicans argued these restrictions are intended to protect the privacy and safety of students who feel uncomfortable sharing a facility with their transgender peers. Forget about the transgender ki kids and what they feel uncomfortable with. No. The Democrats counter that there has been no such issues and worry about the... No, Democrats should say, well, what about those kids? I, I mean, it just could go on. So, I mean, this is what she... I mean, it's unbelievable. And so why I wanted to read a little bit of that is because, look, what she just does there, she's like, oh, my heart breaks. But it's part of a, na a national Republican campaign to target transgendered kids as their scapegoat and their election strategies. So not only, like, if your heart breaks, it didn't matter, obviously. And you're already in cahoots with people. You've already decided on an agenda, and your state is taking part of them, led by you. So, you know, and it shows you the power of the extremists, like of the, the, the white Christian nationalists in the Republican Party, the power that they are exerting in that party to the fact that it doesn't matter. Let's just say in her real true heart, she didn't think that she should do it. Didn't matter to her, did it? Doesn't matter what's in her heart. It basically says, no, the same thing we, you know, no, I'm more concerned about keeping my job and I'm afraid of those kind of extremists, so therefore I'm going to vote with the extremists. Doesn't matter. You're an extremist now. This is the same thing we saw in the filings in the uh, Dominion Dominion um, uh, elect, uh, what do you call it, voting machine suit of Fox News. Once they got all the hands on all those kind of private and kind of um, uh, private email messages um, among uh, a lot of folks in Fox News, you found people like Tucker Carlson, um, a whole bunch of the on-air talent. Um, basically saying that one, they hate Trump, and number two, like we, you know, the we know that the election wasn't stolen, but we're going to keep on going on and going out and telling the lie. Why? Because we're afraid that our viewership is going to go down and we're going to lose money. So therefore, we're going to go out and we're going to tell the conspiracy theories. Doesn't matter, right? Obviously, in the face of facts, all that mattered for those folks was money and status and keeping their position, and they will do whatever the hell it takes. And that's how it has always been. The road to fascism, the road to kind of authoritarianism is always paved by those people. We have this myth in our mind that it's just like, oh, it's Trump. This is why, you know, we've been railing on this for God. I mean, since like 20, 2015, probably, or 2016. And I've labeled it as short term, like Trump bad man, right? Is that 
the only argument we have is Trump bad man. Why are you going to run for office, Trump bad man? Well, what about what the Republican, oh, a Republican colleague, good. Trump bad man, Trump bad man, Trump the problem. Not Republicans, not right wing, not extremism. No, Trump bad man. It's all Trump. By focusing solely on the individual and not the context, right, we're missing the entire story. Right? It pretends, right? And it's a it's a comfortable tale to tell ourselves that everything boils down to one person with some sort of extraordinary skill in pulling the wool over people's eyes. And it lets people like Reynolds, governor of Iowa, lets people like Tucker Carlson, lets people like like everyone else who makes excuses for these people, for the rest of the Republicans who go along with it, lets them all off the hook, says Trump bad man. You know, I, I, you know, my, my wife and I went away for uh, over our spring break, right? We sit in the airport. We're talking to this one, um, this one person, and she says, uh, you know, she goes for, you know, it's whatever chit chat in an airport, right? And at one point, and you know, she's filled, you know, Philly mainline, right? And then at one point, she says that she's a Trump supporter. She's like, I don't know. I think people, you know, I don't care if you don't like the person. I think you should kind of vote for the policies that are best for America, right? And again, like those those two things, right? Think about what that is. What she says is the policies that are best for America are the ones that were enacted under Trump. That means putting kids in cages. That means destroying the public uh, the public sphere and um, and giving like unprecedented tax breaks to billionaires. That means denying a global pandemic and allowing over a million people to die. That means militarizing our borders. That means demonizing you know, right down the road, right? Let's do it. So all those policies she was okay with, even though Trump was annoying even though Trump was, was uncomfortable. That's what the Republican Party, the leadership of the Republican Party and the core of the Republican Party right now is about. Those are the policies. The Trump bad man basically says, we would like somebody who's a little bit more pleasant and not so gruff. But we're okay with the policies. Trump bad man is a delusion. And is he a bad man? Hell yes. Horrible human being. Awful. He should rot in hell for the rest of his life. Rot in a prison cell for the rest of his life, right? Absolutely, right? Is Trump the most kind of critical problem? No. Because there's another one waiting in the wings. And, you know, this is what, what's always frustrating, right, is like, you know, with, you know, even from, from the Democrats, right, the Democrats might say he's the greatest threat to democracy, the greatest existential threat to America that is, ex- okay, but they don't act like it, right? Anyways. Or those policies, whatever. So there you go. That's another one. Um, you know, I, I think it's you know important to see what's happening. I mentioned this about NPR. NPR is canceling four of its podcasts, and they found that you know the revenue decline, the podcast sector has been kind of the the, the greatest decline of all that. They're they're facing a thirty million dollar decline in revenue, um, but we're seeing the kind of the loss of some key programs like Invisibilia. Um, a rough translation was a podcast. I, I frankly I hadn't listened to it until I read the story, and it's actually. 
Um, it's looking at issues that are happening in our country, but from a kind of international perspective. So it's like, you know, how do people say, for example, you know, I don't know, in Germany or in, in, in uh, Japan or in Mexico, how do they view these things that are happening in the US and look at, looking at the reporting from the outside? And it, it was really interesting. That's gone, right? So international reporting, international perspectives that get us out of this kind of corporate, cor corporate media bubble. Nope, we're gonna get rid of that one. Uh, Invisibilia, um, that was just a fascinating podcast. That was actually one of the top podcasts in Apple Podcasts uh, when it first came out for several years. Yeah, it's kind of declined a little bit as, you know, as there's more competition in podcasting realm, there's there. Louder Than a Riot, focused on hip hop, right? And every one of their mom was this kind of funny talk show thing. But what, what's, the, what's notable about that is, you know, NPR said that they wanted to preserve its, you know, core news divisions and stuff. Um, and so it had to make cuts someplace, and this is where they do. But look at what, what happened there is that um, at least, well, two, if not three of those podcasts that are getting cut, um, were filling gaps in the coverage of NPR as a whole, right? They were ways of kind of connecting with younger audience, kind of more diverse audiences. Um, you know, NPR listeners are notoriously white, notoriously suburban, notoriously kind of middle to upper class, right? Highly educated and all this. This is actually bringing in other kind of perspectives and allowing voices to kind of come through. And that's been, and that's been gutted. Right. Um, and, and why I bring this up, I'm not you know, here to hate on NPR, but I'm saying like, this is kind of what the cost is, right? When, um, when we're seeing a media environment, which is kind of just being driven by kind of corporate ad dollars. That's crazy. Uh, other thing just kind of, you know, uh, Amazing to see this massive three-day strike in Los Angeles from public school workers, the bus drivers, custodians, special education assistants, cafeteria workers. Um, you know, they're basically, you know, they're like, uh, you know, arguing for, you know, you know, um, arguing for, you know, something like, you know, what is it, $38,000 uh, of wages, right? I mean, it, I don't mean to be laughing, but it's like, uh, Let's see, let me get up here. Yeah, the union's goal was has been to raise the average annual wage of members to $36,000, right? $36,000, right? That's what you're, what you're talking about, right? And so there've been this negotiations that have been going on for quite some time, and these are the poorest paid workers in the entire school district, second largest in the country. And the goal was to kind of have a, have a, you know, but to raise the average annual wage to $36,000. That doesn't mean the starting wage. That means the average annual wage. That means there's still people below that and still people above that. And that was something the school district said no. And again, because of the way that we've defunded public schools has contributed to that. But all good on it. You know, organizing gets the goods. What can I say? Um... So one thing I'm sure that you saw the stuff on Donald, Donald Trump um, raising over 100 million, 100, I'm sorry, 1.5 million dollars in three days after he basically said he was going to get arrested on Tuesday. Uh, here, we, let me check the news feed again. Let me just double check. Uh, oh, is he arrested today? Oh, no, that's right. Nope. Still the top story there is U.S. launches airstrikes in Syria. Yep. There you go. Oh, but also House to vote on GOP education bill that aims to provide additional oversight for parents, i.e., it's an anti-woke thing once again. That's going to happen. Um, but it's just funny. Here, let me just give a search. Let me see. Let's see, Donald uh, Trump. Let's see. Let's see, Donald Trump indictment. Let's see, anything there? 
Nope, he's just warning of the potential of death and destruction if he's charged, uh, whatever that. And meanwhile, the entire week, like on MSNBC, was spon- was basically, which they called it this, you know, indictment watch. Every night, Trump, 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 Trump. No, ru- no room for anything else, despite everything else going on. So whatever. There you go. Um, but the last thing I wanted to say, just to kind of clear a little space, and then we'll uh, we'll call it a day, is like this. I thought this is just a really telling article from uh, the Washington Post, and this was in, uh, by um, uh, Gene Whalen, uh, reporting in the business section of the Washington Post. And uh, the title of the article is called "Electric Cars Are Creating a New Economy and Leaving Some Towns Behind." And workers and small businesses in Belvedere, uh, Illinois, are dealing with the aftermath of mass layoffs after Stellantis idled its Jeep factory. All right. So I just want to read just a little bit, if you bear with me, of this, because I think how this article approaches the issue is part of the problems that we're dealing with. And how do we can think about telling different stories or approaching this in a different way? So here's here's the I'll just read the first few paragraphs. So see, early last year, workers at a Jeep factory are hoping. Uh, here hope their plant would be converted to an electric vehicle factory as the auto industry revamps for a green energy future. Engineers came to take measurements for a possible retooling and rumors spread that electric sport cars were on the agenda. But those hopes crumbled last month when the corporate parent company, Stellantis, ended production at the 58-year-old plant and laid off roughly 1,200 workers, ripping the heart out of the small town of 70 miles northwest of Chicago. The decision now causing knockoff, um, knock-on layoffs um, and lost businesses at local auto, auto parts suppliers, restaurants, and shops shows the dark side of the zero-emission economy the Biden administration is championing with tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer-funded subsidies. Even as many communities will be transformed by the federally-backed um, push to produce electric cars, batteries, and solar powers, some will get left behind. That's the key paragraph, Right. So I'm with them, right, at the, those first two paragraphs. I'm with this article, you know, in terms of, like, being able to focus. Look, this, this can't happen, right? This cannot happen. We cannot kind of allow, like, sacrifice, you know, this you call it sacrifice zones, right? I mean, this is what you hear a lot in kind of, you know, talking about what happens in the fossil fuel industry, right? You have these sacrifice zones that, okay, so that we all get cheap natural gas. We're just that community over there, you know, 1200 people or whatever like that, you know, their lives are going to be ruined, but I get my cheap gas sacrifice zone. This is the same kind of stuff. There cannot be sacrifice zones in the transition to a green economy. Right. And focusing on this and putting attention on this is absolutely critical. Right. So you've got a company Jeep, right. And by the way, is Jeep has just started coming out with its electric vehicles. Right. And because Jeep does a certain percentage of, of its manufacturing of these vehicles um, in the United States, they would qualify for the subsidies under federal law. Right. So that's important. Right. Um, especially, I guess, there's a new line of stuff that's coming out soon. Um, so there you have it. So th- there's there's that production is going to happen. Right. There's no doubt about it. They're going to chase the dollars. But there's no provision in the, the, you know, Inflation Reduction Act, right? And that version that was finally got passed, that is basically going to say to that company, Jeep or Stellantis, right? Because let's remember is that all these companies are now kind of these gigantic international firms that are owned by kind of like a whole bunch of other, of you know, of other companies. Um, and if I, don't, if I don't, let me just see if I get this right. Um, uh, 
Yeah, Stellantis. I'm just so so you know, right? Stellantis is a multinational automotive manufacturing corporation formed in 2021 on the basis of a 50-50 cross-border merger between the Italian-American conglomerate Fiat Chrysler Automotives and the French PSA Group. The company is headquartered in Amsterdam. Okay, got that? So Jeep, right, the American Jeep, right, is effectively owned by a Dutch company. Right, or where that's where the headquarters are. All this is where their headquarters are. It's a, it's a global conglomerate, right? For all this stuff, they're these gigantic company. So part of the story here is what happens when you allow for this massive co- consolidation of wealth, where the the sole purpose of holding firms like this is to reap the most amount of suck the most amount of profit for shareholders as you can and not have to worry about kind of the impact of what you're doing on actual people in the world, right? So that's part of the story that is completely absent from this story. But the bigger point is this one. Let me go back to that paragraph. So the decision is calling these knock-on layoffs, lost businesses, and a whole bunch of stuff happening. Now, this, this is it. This shows the dark side of the admissions economy the Biden administration is championing with tens of billions of dollars of taxpayer-funded subsidies. Even as many communities will be transformed by federally backed push to produce electric cars, batteries, and solar panels, some will get left behind. What this ignores, right? So basically what this says to any reader that is not paying super close attention is that, look, yes, this is the Biden administration's agenda, and there's a dark side to it, right? They want to tell you it's all nice and roses, but there's a dark side to it. And look at these people that are just being destroyed, right? What it does not say is that, say, for example, in that same paragraph, you could say, this is the thing that says something like the Green New Deal was designed to pay attention to. This is what environmental activists have been pointing to for years. This is what some of the best research has shown that you cannot allow this to happen. Right. Legislation, even if you, I, I believe the Build Back Better bill, it was better in that bill. Right. And the Build Back Better bill. Right. You basically had provisions that were not were basically saying, OK, you want your company, Jeep, you want to start making electric vehicles and qualify for these things. You want you want the investments um, the, from the federal government. Then what you cannot do is do exactly what you just did. You cannot sacrifice twelve hundred workers and an entire community right, to further your own profits. No. As a matter of fact, if you do that, you're going to be penalized, right? That would be putting teeth into that. But instead, because of people like Joe Manchin, because of the pressure of all the fossil fuel industries, because of all the destruction of the Build Back Better Act, now you've got this watered-down version of this, which is now causing this. So the watered-down version of the bill that was championed by people like Joe Manchin is willing to sacrifice those people, even as it makes little nods toward a green future. That's more the story. Instead, the way this narrative reads in this article is like, this is somehow kind of like, you know, it's either Biden's devious plan or it's some kind of natural disaster. So here, here, for example, this is the uh, Belvedere's mayor. Right, and this is what Belvedere's mayor says. This is the natural disaster move, right? So whenever you turn the ship, you're going to have casualties. Unfortunately, the casualties are going to be our employees and our community, right? 
whenever you turn the ship, there are going to be casualties. That is not an argument that holds water. Right? Let, let, me, let me explain. What the argument or what is being said here is that casualties are necessary for changing directions. Right? But here's the, here's the thing. If you already know there will be quote unquote casualties or there's a potential of casualties if you turn the ship, right? If you know that ahead of time, then a goal could be part of solving the problem is to avoid the casualties, right? How do you prevent casualties? Instead, this word, unfortunately, in this article does a tremendous amount of work. Unfortunately, this is from the mayor. Unfortunately, the casualties are going to be our employers and our community, like, like just unfortunate. As if, as opposed to no, they left you behind, right? And so on the one hand, it's like, we have to basically, uh, reporters have to be better about the way that they frame this stuff. If you want to say that, look, this is a potential of making this, this economy, if you want to champion those workers, right? Then you have to actually name the enemies that are preventing us from protecting those workers. And if Biden's administration has been told this and has been asked the question about those workers losing their job and says we don't care about them, then hold them to accountable, no doubt about it. But you got to look at the whole thing. Otherwise, what this article ends up doing is it pits the Biden administration against blue-collar workers. It pits the government against white working or working class people. Right? And that creates more distrust and hatred of the government. Right? Let me go on a little bit more and then I'll stop. So it says federal subsidies for electric vehicles aren't the only reason automakers are going green. But since, here's a key thing, since federal officials have put their finger on the scale, this is actually this quote from the mayor, part of the quote. But since federal officials have put their finger on the scale in favor of electric vehicles, they should be doing more to lessen collateral, collateral damage for towns like Belvedere, Morris added. Quote, if they're going to weigh in on that, then they should weigh in on how they're going to help employees here and in the community. Absolutely 100%. And let's be clear. This is what's a little bit annoying about this mayor is it says, like, put their finger on the scale. Well, they already put their finger on the scale in favor of fossil fuel cars, right? Fossil fuels get huge amount of taxpayer, taxpayer subsidies in order to produce the fossil fuels behind us. Automakers get it, right? I mean, right across the board. So let's, let's just, there, there's always been a finger on the scale. The difference is, is there's been a shifting, right? And frankly, that's what policy is. Policy is about enacting priorities for a people. <laughs> right? So when you say put the finger on the scale, it's something like you want to introduce that deviousness, Mayor. No. But the statement there about if you're going to weigh in on that, then you got to weigh in on the other side. Absolutely 100%. So let's talk about all the people who are not who are not weighing in on that. Not just people that are mad because it's Biden doing it. Right? But by the fact that that right now, quote unquote, federal officials are now willing to either sacrifice your community through like rampant climate change or sacrifice your community um, by kind of allowing these kind of inter international global conglomerates um, to screw your community over. Both of those are failures of our federal government. Absolutely. 
One more paragraph. As it as it embarks on the biggest uh, retooling of the century, the auto industry has announced more than $70 billion of EV investments in the United States alone. That spending is already creating new pockets of prosperity in many parts of the country and apprehension in the longstanding auto manufacturing communities whose fates aren't yet certain. The automobile industry, again, global conglomerates now, they have announced more than $70 billion in EV investments. Who is holding them accountable? This article, and again, I'm not going to read the whole thing for you here today, but I mean, the link will be in today's show notes, right? But the, uh, um, this article, just like the, the auto industry is just doing this thing. They have no responsibility. They do not need to be accountable to anybody. They just need to do this stuff. And they're creating these new pockets of prosperity. New pockets of prosperity. But you're destroying other communities. Jeep and Stellantis have made a decision to not not to retool this plant. And it's not because they don't have the money. They're making record profits. It's not because they don't have the money. It's not because they're not getting the subsidies. It's not because they have no choice. No, it's because they choose to do this. And if you're going to make $70 billion in investments and you're getting money from the federal government, our money, then damn well, this is where the mayor is right. They need to basically make sure that that investment goes back to those communities that are going to be directly impacted. Instead, no. So for all those people out there who are hating on the Green New Deal, so the Green New Deal, that's, this is what the Green New Deal was designed to prevent. Because they knew that this is the way capitalism works, right? And it's a nice, easy move to make in this country to basically, oh, let's just kind of hate on the federal government and hate on the Democrats or hate on the Republic, whatever it might be. Let's hate on the government. We're going to see the job creators as the corporate sector, and we're going to talk about how the government is screwing people over while new pockets of prosperity are being kind of uh, created by the um, by these uh, auto in- by these giant corporations. It's disgusting to me, and I think like this, you know, for for my mind, you know, look, I'm not going to um, hate on this one particular journalist too much, like Jean Whalen, like she's writing this article for Business Section, okay, whatever, like she's not the kind of linchpin in this big gigantic thing, no. But it's, it's, it's just a key example that we get from our media about, about how issues are framed and how they're kind of being talked about. And we, this is where I think, you know, we need to be vigilant in kind of making sure that we're not accepting those narratives, right? And we're holding the, we're holding the companies accountable. Like, where's the hate for the companies in this? By the mayor, by the journalist, by the commentators? Right there. There's some more critical stuff, but it's buried at the very back bottom of the article. Right? So it's like, not only are our policies whacked, but also our language and our discourse is whacked in terms of how we're talking about all this stuff. But that's just it. That's just my little kind of deep dive for the day uh, uh, in that kind of one piece. Anyways. Oh, boy, 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 boy. All right, everybody. Well, you know, this is just going to be just about to do it for me today. Um, I appreciate y'all tuning in. Um, appreciate the discussion. Um, um, sorry, I'm a little over, over all the place today. I am so backed up with work. I can't even begin to tell you. Um, I've, uh, but I've just got to buckle down and do it at this point. There's no other way around it. Um, but I didn't want this to go to the waste, go get put by the wayside this week. Um, so here. 
So having said that, I want to remind you that we've got Cyril Michaleko from the Bucks County Beacon, editor-in-chief of the Bucks County Beacon, coming on Monday at 7 p.m. Uh, we're going to be digging into all the school board stuff that's been happening in Bucks County and beyond. Um, it's only expanding right now. Um, we're hearing more and more from uh, school districts that are kind of beyond the ones, you know, the ones we're normally talking about. Uh, we're seeing stuff happening in the, uh, Pensbury. We're seeing things happening in um, uh, I'm going to forget the name. This is one the small school district that was uh, not too far. Uh, uh, this really small kind of rural school district having these bills come in. We're seeing happening things in Owen Souderton. Obviously, what's what's happening down the road here in um, um, trying to kind of like, you know, defund public libraries uh, in Telford. And now we're seeing that kind of, uh, you know, this calls for a book burning to burn the books in Telford. Uh, you know, this stuff is just kind of heating up. And so uh, we're going to kind of really dig into this on Monday. Uh, but for now, I wish you an awesome weekend, everybody. Uh, depending on where you're listening to, you might be uh, like me and have a, a rainy weekend. Um, it just, it's going to work out kind of well for me because I'm going to have to be grading all weekend and just get my nose down in front of this computer, um, even though it is not what I want to be doing at all. <laughs> but there you go. Um, but for all you out there, uh, I wish you a great weekend. Um, and thank you for, again, for all the support you've shown uh, Raising Chicken over the years and of lately. Uh, thank you to our, our new subscribers and supporters. I appreciate you. Um, and we'll be looking forward to some great stuff coming up ahead. Um, got several kind of irons in the fire uh, about people uh, for additional guests on Out the Coop Lives. Waiting to hear back from a couple folks when we get them scheduled. Um, I'll have news on that for you um, as soon as I can. Uh, but for now, it's going to hit the weekend running, I guess. Um, wish you a good one, everybody. Keep up the fight. Uh, let me know what's going on. Uh, if you got things you want me to know about, things you think we should be talking about on the show, let me know. Hit me up. Until then, see ya!